happy to, to be gathering together to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, to open up his word uh, and uh, to be rejuvenated uh, and to rejoice in our salvation that we have in Christ and all that he has done for us and all that he is. Uh, and then after this, uh, we'll scatter. We'll go back uh, to our, our lives, to our communities, uh, to our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and we will be uh, witnesses and ambassadors for Christ. But but now is when we are rejuvenated. Now when we open up God's Word, we, we come to, to learn, to apply, to be impacted, to be transformed. And I'm excited to uh, to pick up our study back where we were in John chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, please open uh, there with me. And as you're... As you're turning there, back when I was uh, in high school and playing football, uh, after the there wasn't usually a whole bunch of time after the game uh, to change and, and clean up as it was when I was uh, playing in college. So uh, the bus was always a, a mess after high school football games. Uh, you, you'd kind of throw on some clean clothes, but then everybody was still sweaty and, and stinky. We'd kind of remove our helmets and pads and uh, and then be ready to roll and. Uh, my, my senior year, uh, it was a, a playoff game against uh, uh, a, a school uh, in a, a rough neighborhood. Uh, we played Crenshaw High School uh, in the L.A. area. And uh, we were the, the number 15 seed in the playoffs going to play the number 2 seed in the playoffs. Uh, and they, they thought they were going to destroy us. Uh, but it ended up that we won the game in overtime. Okay, and again, this is a, this is a, a rough place. <laughs> and so our, our coach, rather than saying, okay, we're going to go back to the, the visiting locker room and we're going to change and do all this, he's like, no, everybody, you keep your helmets on and you keep your pads on and we stay on the field until the bus is there on the street. And he was very serious, very serious. It was very important that we stay up there because we were, we were in hostile territory. Okay, no, no, no joke. It was, uh, it was that joy of winning the football game, but also like, okay, we're kind of in trouble now. Uh, and so uh, we understood and expected hostility with where we were. Uh, and uh, I think more and more in our culture today... As Christians, we need to develop that type of an expectation of hostility. You know, we need to, to come prepared and expecting the world that we live in, our culture, which has previously been kind of a, uh, a Christian culture. But we're, we are rapidly moving out and away from that uh, and realizing that the, the world around us is changing from being a friendly territory to being hostile territory. And if we are un prepared for hostility, we're going to feel ambushed. We're going to feel overwhelmed when we do encounter hostility in the world, right? Now, I've had conversations with, with, with some of you here, and you've had questions about, man, you said, hey, this is what's going on in my workplace. What do I do? Now, here, here's the, the policies that are being initiated. Now, here, here's what my, my workplace is, is sponsoring. You know, what, what do we do when, when a non-discrimination policy is put in place that, in essence, discriminates against you alone as a Christian? Now, how do you respond when, when you have to accept and give hearty approval to sin? And your, your supervisor is saying, hey, you, you need to agree to this. And if you don't agree to this, there will be other conversations that we are going to have. 
Or what if it's not an official policy in your workplace, but maybe it's just uh, a, a specific supervisor or a co-worker that's hostile to Christianity? Doesn't want to hear anything about Christ, about Christians, about that neighbor who can cause problems for you. What if they're hostile to anything remotely religious? Students, what if you're in school, college, high school, middle school, and your fellow students, your classmates, begin to articulate how close-minded Christianity is and how I can't believe that you would believe some of these things. And that's taking place more and more. We, we are experiencing more and more hostility in our culture today. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Again, we should come to expect it. And we should come to expect it because of what we're going to see this morning in John chapter 5. As we've looked in, in previous weeks, John chapter 5, the events surround Jesus healing a lame man on the Sabbath. A man who had been lame for 38 years, and he heals him in an instant. Just get up and walk. And then, after that miracle, there's this huge controversy. Because the Pharisees are going to see this man walking and carrying his bed, and they're like, hey, what do you think you're doing? That's where I want to pick things up. We're going to look at verses 16 through 18 this morning, but I want to, I want to begin reading in, in John chapter 5. The end of verse 9, it may be a new paragraph uh, in your Bible, but I'm going to read uh, starting there. Speaking of that day that Jesus healed, now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What we're going to see here is the beginning of hostility towards Jesus. Uh, the Jewish leaders are, are growing in their hostility because now Jesus is no longer just out baptizing in the wilderness. He is here in Jerusalem and he is teaching against what they have been teaching for years and years. All of their man-made Sabbath rules. And he keeps on performing healings and doing these things on the Sabbath. And so the leaders had grown in their hatred and hostility towards Jesus as he disregarded their teaching, and as he proclaimed his own deity, as he proclaimed equality with God. 
This is the, the root of their hostility. And this, has, this passage has much to teach us about the deity of Jesus. This is one of the, the most clear uh, passages on, on what Jesus was saying about himself and that the, they understood what he was saying about himself. So again, if, in the world around us, many times you'll hear people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be Jesus. Jesus never claimed to be Jesus. Let me backtrack. Jesus never claimed to be God. I've heard that said multiple times. I'm like, I don't think you've read the Gospel of John. Because it's very clear. That's why he was killed. That's why they came after him. Because he claimed to be equal with God. And if Jesus' own claim to be the Son of God led to his execution, if that's what led to hostility from the world around him, what do you think is going to happen to anybody who agrees with Jesus about that? What's going to happen to those who agree that Jesus is the Son of God? If that was what led to his execution, what can we expect? Right? And, and that's what I see in this passage. There's this emphasis on why they began to pursue and come after Christ. And it shows us also how the world responds to these claims. How does the world respond when you begin to meddle with their teaching? They, be, they begin to, to fight back. They begin to address you uh, in an unfriendly way. And then how, do you, how does the world respond when we say Jesus is the Son of God? That is a significant statement. And that's what we're going to see this morning, this, these verses are going to provide us with, with two expectations of hostility that we have to, have to develop. That we should expect hostility when these things take place. The first is that we can expect hostility when we confront the world's teaching. We can expect hostility when we confront the world's teaching. That's found in verse 16. The Jews began to pursue, they began to persecute Jesus... And it was not just because of this event. Not just, hey, you healed one time on the Sabbath with the, the verb tense there. That means that this was an ongoing thing. And you read elsewhere in the four Gospels that Jesus was constantly breaking their man-made Sabbath laws. He's going to the grain fields and he's plucking the grain and eating it with his disciples. He's going and he's, he's healing and casting out demons on the Sabbath. And you see over and over again these Sabbath controversies. He was constantly breaking their man-made laws. And here, what's initially going to be brought forward, what the Pharisees are going to be charging him with, is, hey, he's broken their Sabbath laws in two ways. Number one, he's healed on the Sabbath. Like, well, not many people can be accused of that, but that's what they're charging him with. Uh, He's healing on the Sabbath. And then, what did he tell the man that he healed to do? He says, hey, go work. That's the, the Jewish definition of, hey, you can't pick up a burden and take it from one area, one domain, to another area. That's classified as work. So Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and then he told somebody else to work on the Sabbath. So they begin to pursue, they begin to persecute him. And Jesus had no regard for these man-made Sabbath regulations. And we looked at that uh, several weeks ago, of, of God intended the Sabbath to be... A day of rest. But what the Pharisees had turned this day of rest that was created for man, they'd kind of flipped everything around and said, really, man was created for the Sabbath. That we have to do all of these things. And if we don't uphold the Sabbath, and the Sabbath itself became a burden when it was intended to be a rest. So Jesus had 
no desire to, to abide by their man-made rules. In fact, he, he works to unmask this false teaching, this false religious system that skewed the commandments of the Old Testament. It altered them in a way that was never intended. Uh, and the, the Sabbath had become the capstone of this false religious system. Uh, Josephus, the, the first century Jewish historian, says that Sabbath keeping was one of the most important markers of Jewish identity. That is how the Jews identified themselves, by keeping the Sabbath. And this is, this is one of the central issues in the culture at that time that needed to be addressed. If you're, if you're going to come into a culture and say, hey, what are the, the major false ideas uh, that are skewing this entire nation, this would have been one of the big ones. And that's why Jesus is always addressing it and focusing upon it. And what we see is that confronting the false teaching of the world, it's going to prompt persecution from the leaders of that movement. Whoever's teaching those things is not going to like it when you begin to point out their inconsistencies, when you, when they point, when you point out that they are contrary to Scripture. And, and if that happened to, to Jesus, again, we can't expect anything less. We should expect uh, to have... Uh, Hostility. We should ex- expect to have confrontation when we speak out against the world and all that it is teaching. And when I, when I say that, I'm not saying go and seek out confrontation. We don't have to do that. We don't have to go uh, and, and seek out trouble. Okay? Uh, we need to understand that, hey, we, we, can, we can speak the truth, but we don't have to go looking for uh, a fight. Uh, and, and some Christians do that, and we don't need to do that. Okay, First Timothy 2, 2 says this, that pray that we may lead peaceful and a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And it says that right after uh, we should pray for our leaders. Now that should be our mindset. We're not going out looking for a fight. We're praying for peace. We're praying just to, hey, let me live a, a quiet and godly life. But we don't go searching out for conflict. But more and more, what are we seeing? That, that conflict, that confrontation is coming for us. What's amazing, earlier uh, this year, there was a, a former women's tennis star, Martina Navratilova, uh, who, who made headlines. Uh, and and she, she sparked the, the anger of the, the LGBTQ community. And what was really interesting is because uh, she used to be a, a spokesperson for the LGBTQ community. She used to be one of the leading figures because back in the 1980s, she was one of the first professional athletes to come out as a homosexual. So Martina Navratilova came out in the 1980s as a lesbian. And in February of this year, she, she created quite a stir by speaking out against the transgender movement. And a little bit of it uh, goes back to Christmas of last year where in a, on social media, on, in a, a tweet... She just said this simple statement, you can't just proclaim yourself a female and be able to compete against women. So she's saying, saying that regarding, uh, there's all of these athletes who were born male and now competing against women, and they're winning everything imaginable. Uh, a couple of years ago, I remember for this year or the previous year, I think in the state of Connecticut, in the, the high school girls' 100-meter dash, the top two winners were born male. Like, man, how would you feel if you, if you were the third place, the, the, the actual girl racing, and you, and you lost to these 
two boys. Uh, so, so Navratilova is just, she said this around Christmas time uh, last year, and it gave this enormous and immediate backlash. She, she was just immediately blacklisted, all of these. So she said, okay, well, wait a second. Let me just back up and let me think more about this issue. So she took a month, month and a half, and in February of this year, she wrote an article in the Sunday Times, which is a very influential London newspaper. She said, hey, after thinking about all of this, I'm even more convinced that this is wrong. And and this was the article that she wrote. She says, the rules on trans athletes reward, cheats, and punish the innocent. That was the, the title of the article that she wrote. And in the article, she writes this. She says, well, I've done that now, speaking of her reconsideration. And if anything, my views have strengthened to put the argument at its most basic a man cannot decide to be female, take hormones, uh, or a man can decide to be female, take hormones if required by whatever sporting organization is concerned. Uh, he can win everything in sight and perhaps earn a small fortune, and then he can reverse his decision and go back uh, and be a man if he so desires. She continues, it's insane and it's cheating. She says, I'm, I am happy to address a chance gender woman in whatever form she prefers, but I would not be happy to compete against her. It would not be fair. And she, she says, simply reducing hormone levels, that's what most of these sports organizations require, that does not solve the problem. And she says, a man builds up muscle and bone density as well as a greater number of oxygen carrying red blood cells from childhood. Training increases the discrepancy. Indeed, if a male were to change gender in such a way as to eliminate any accumulated advantage, he would have to begin hormone treatment before puberty. She says, for me, that is unthinkable. So what's remarkable is you have uh, conflict within the moral revolutionaries, right? And in response to this article, if you thought that the outrage back in December was big, this was even bigger. That she was, in essence, disowned, disavowed, attacked, all of the above. And the transgender revolutionaries were showing hostility to one of the leading feminist revolutionaries. You know, if you are not going along with what they are teaching, they're going to attack you. And so think about it this way. If this is taking place within the revolution itself, how much more? against us as Christians. When, when we just say, hey, I think that's wrong, and I, I think the, the whole movement is flawed and at odds and in rebellion against our Creator. Just thinking through and understanding that, of that hostility is going to be towards anyone and everything that raises itself up against what they are teaching. And here's something to think about. If, if we are going to be lights in a dark world, lights get attention in the darkness, don't they? You can see them from quite a, quite a ways off, and we need to understand and wrestle with that reality. If we are going to be light in a dark world, that's going to capture people's attention. We're not going to be able to fly under the radar anymore as we have in the past. And again, we don't need to speak out against some of these things, it's just going to be coming for us. And so we have to develop an expectation of it. We have to, to prepare for this hostility that we are going to face. Our culture is just going more and more in that direction, but we have to, 
prepare ourselves for it and continue to proclaim the gospel, continue to, to preach the truth. And whatever happens, we still look to Christ in faith. I love what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul rejoiced in his sufferings. If you read the book of Acts, as we're, as we're reading through it together on, on Sunday mornings, just in our scripture reading, you read through and you see how regularly Paul was attacked and persecuted. We're going to read here in a couple of weeks of how he was literally stoned and drug out struck outside the city, stoned, and then thought left for dead. And then he immediately goes back into the city. You're like, Paul, what are you doing? Really? You're going to go right back in? But over and over again, he recounts his suffering and all that he endured for the name of Christ. And Paul didn't go around like picking fights. He didn't do that. He said, hey, I'm just going to go teach in the synagogue. That's where he would go. He would go to a city and he would go to the synagogue and proclaim Christ from the scriptures. And guess what would happen? There would be an uproar. He said, in one city, they said, hey, these are the men who are turning the world upside down. And again, he's like, he's just going to the synagogue and teaching what the Old Testament says. Turning the world on its head. We need to, to be prepared for such things. For that hostility. But, but what is that... What does an expectation of hostility mean for our daily lives? What does that, what does that look like? For those of you in the, the workplace, expect hostility. Expect that maybe there's going to be some, some co-workers who are, who are not going to be your best friends. That they may give you some, some pushback. Expect uh, maybe you have pushback from supervisors. Uh, expect even the possibility of losing your job. And I know that's a sobering thing, right? But, but if there, there are going to be moments and times when we are faithful to Christ, it could cost us dearly. If you want to see examples of that, go read the book of Daniel. Right? When, when Daniel uh, and his uh, friends were two separate occasions, said, hey, worship Nebuchadnezzar, worship the king, or this is what's going to happen. You'll be thrown into a fiery furnace, say, okay, God will deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we, we get to go be with him. And then with Daniel himself, he gets thrown into a lion's den. But in those two examples, we see pictures of what it looks like to stand faithfully for God against hostility, ready to accept whatever consequences come, but saying, hey, I'm going to remain faithful. As one theologian said, we need to develop a theology of getting fired. Now, of standing faithfully for Christ in the middle of a hostile world. As individuals, I think there are some implications. What about as parents? Parents, are, are we preparing our children to grow up in a world that is hostile to Christianity? Are we teaching them to count the cost of what it looks like to follow Jesus? See, in, in the world that we're moving into, the prosperity gospel doesn't necessarily work. Right, uh, And again, as we're reading through the, the book of Job, Job's friends are constantly saying, hey, if you just lived right, Job, you wouldn't be suffering. And, and Job is like, no, I'm a righteous person suffering. And, and we need to, to teach a right theology to our children 
of understanding, hey, the, the world is going to be contrary. It's going to be hostile to us. If we're going to stand with Jesus and for Jesus, there is going to be difficulties that lie ahead. But we need to begin to, to teach our children and instill within them shepherding and discipling. And, and to the, the students and teens that are, that are here, I would say, you guys, you, you have your work cut out for you. And I, I understand the pressures that you are now facing and the world that you're going into. Uh, of, hey, going into any four-year secular school, man, you are going into hostile territory. Keep your helmets and pads on. Okay? Be ready. And you have to understand that. But at the same time, all, all of this persecution, all of this hostility, it, it also reveals some things. If you guys are with me and John, turn back over to the, the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 4. We see one of the ways that the Lord uses hostility and persecution of the church. Because... Persecution and hostility from the world regarding our faith is going to have a cleansing effect on the church. It's going to reveal what is really in our hearts. If you look uh, here in Mark chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 9, Jesus gives this parable of the soils. Uh, there's four soils, and uh, really only the last soil uh, are those who are genuinely saved. And then if you look uh, in verses uh, 13 through 20, we're going to read those. This is the explanation of that parable. Jesus is going to explain it to us. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, what happens? Immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. Now, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. One of the things that we also have to keep in mind is that persecution reveals really what is going on inside us, what is most important. And we need to keep in mind that there will be some who fall away with persecution. And how we respond when we have those those trials at work or those those difficult conversations with neighbors, that's what's going to really bring out what we believe in our hearts. Okay, are we willing to stand courageously, expecting hostility, and when we expect it, we're going to think through, okay, how do I have this conversation with my boss? How do, how do I say this graciously, but, but faithfully remain to what Christ is calling me to do? Say, hey, boss, I, I understand what you're saying, but, but my commitment is first and foremost to Jesus. Uh, and, and in my conscience, I, I can't agree or approve of what you're, you're demanding of me with this. And so, and so I would ask, like, hey, can, can you be understanding? Do you see, you, you don't want me to violate my conscience. And, and in this policy that you're creating, it's really singling and, and discriminating against me as a, as a Christian. 
you know, learning and understanding and preparing to have those difficult conversations. And none of us look forward to those conversations, right? Is anybody looking forward to having a really hard conversation with your boss this week? No, not at all. But it's something that we have to be prepared for. Because again, if we're not prepared, when that conversation comes, you feel ambushed, you feel overwhelmed. And again, understand that conversation is coming with the trajectory of our world right now. And this hostility from the world is inescapable, especially because we're not going to be in agreement with all that the world is teaching. If we're going to confront the world's teaching, it's going to draw hostility. It's going to draw attention. Therefore, we have to prepare for it. And hostility will come from our confrontation of false teaching, but this passage also shows a second reason that we can expect hostility. It's in verses 17 through 18, if we turn back to, to John's Gospel. And this is that we can expect hostility when we claim that Jesus is God. We can expect hostility when we claim that Jesus is God. Let's look, look back at verses 17 and 18. Verse 16, we had this initial charge and the, the explanation of why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. And, and verse 17 is going to show us his response to it. And then verse 18 is going to show us another accusation that the Jews are now going to be pursuing Jesus concerning. But look at me, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, says, My father is working until now, and I am working. And then verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And when we come to verse 17, this is the beginning of a really long monologue. Uh, from here to the end of the chapter is just Jesus speaking and making a defense to these Jewish leaders who are bringing these accusations against him. Jesus is going to be the only one speaking for the rest of the chapter, and he's going to make a defense uh, for all that he has claimed and all that he has said. And that little phrase there in verse 17, but Jesus answered them. If you look at verse 16, we haven't seen any actual words, any actual quote from the Jewish leaders. Uh, and the way this kind of Greek word works is that when uh, there's an answer, but there's been no initial statement has the implication of making a defense, a legal defense. And that's what we see Jesus is beginning to do. The rest of this is going to have a a courtroom feel, and we'll talk more about that uh, in coming weeks. But we just begin to see Jesus making this personal legal defense. Uh, And the, the central and simple argument that he makes in verse 17 is that he's equal with God the Father. He says, hey, my Father is working so I'm working too. Say, hey, that's what God the Father is doing. That's what God the Son should be doing as well. Uh, and th- this would have been uh, the, the, a reason for a big theological debate. Have you ever thought about that? So it, on the seventh day, back in Genesis 1, it says God rested uh, from his creative work. He rested uh, and, and made the seventh day as a day of rest. But then you really think about it. But in what way does God rest? How does that work? He said, well, he doesn't rest completely. How do we know that? 
because the universe hasn't fallen apart, right? Uh, and, and understanding that the universe isn't a, a self-sustaining mechanism. It's sustained by God. And we'll actually, Colossians will say it's sustained by Christ. Okay? Uh, the universe continues because God is still working to keep everything together. Uh, but this was a big theological debate uh, among the Jewish rabbis uh, because they're saying, hey, does God work? Does God break the Sabbath? And again, you're like, you have this all backwards. God created the Sabbath. The Sabbath didn't create God. Uh, but according to their logic in these big theological debates, because again, work was defined as moving something from one domain to another. And they said, well, how big is God's domain? It's the universe, so you can't, he can't move something from one domain to another because it's all his domain. You're like, okay, that's, that makes sense, but I think you're, you're going into these minutia of, of things. Uh, and so they came to the conclusion that God can work on the Sabbath. Uh, and so in part of his response, Jesus is saying, hey, you, you know, rabbis, you know, Pharisees, that theological explanation. You say that it's okay for God to work. Well, God the Son is also working. But, but here is where the issue arose. Because Jesus doesn't say, uh, our Father is working. Right? That, that would have been a normal and okay thing for, for a, uh, a Jew to say. He doesn't say our Father in a collective sense. What does he say? He says, my Father. Which implies a, a special and unique, intimate relationship with God. And again, in, in the Jewish way of thinking, a father and son were, were equal. They had equal standing. So when, when Jesus is saying, God is my personal father, what did the, the Jews understand immediately? There's implications. He's saying that he is equal with God. And when they understood that, it, their, their persecution went from like just attacking him and, and battling against his ministry to what? It got kicked up a notch. So now they're pursuing all the more to kill him. It goes up quite a bit. And this statement that Jesus made in calling God his own father. Understand that it would have been blasphemous if it wasn't true. And ultimately, that's, this is the, the charge that Jesus is going to be murdered and executed for, for blasphemy, for making himself equal with God. And again, it would be blasphemous if it wasn't true, but it is. It is. And again, if, if this is the response from the world of Jesus' time, he says, I am the Son of God, and the response is immediately, okay, well then you have to die. What can we expect? What should we expect? We should ex- expect that same hostility. In fact, when Jesus is getting ready to depart from his disciples at the Last Supper, if you turn over with me to John 15 and 16, his last few hours with the 11 faithful disciples, Judas has left, so now there's just the 11, Jesus is going to, to warn them, hey, it's going to get rough from here on out. Look at me. Verse 18 in John 15, Jesus tells the eleven, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, 
but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So Jesus argues from from greater to lesser, right? If our Lord and Savior was persecuted, what should we expect? The exact same thing, right? Very logical and clear. The world killed Jesus. That hostility is going to carry over to us. And Jesus warns his disciples of that. But I think to some extent here in in 21st century America, we've lost sight of that just a little bit, if we're really honest, right? Because we don't live with a day-to-day fear that someone's going to come up and kill us for being a Christian, right? We don't live that way here in Idaho. California, maybe. Uh, But uh, we're we're safe here in Idaho now, right? Right. Jokingly. Uh, But understanding that and this feeling of safety and being safe here and now, understand that that makes us really a minority both in church history and in 21st century, our 21st century world. If you look at over the course of, of the history of the church, persecution began the first martyr, Stephen, Acts chapter 7. Right? And it has just continued on from there. You see it over and over again in the book of Acts. If you haven't read or listened to Fox's book of martyrs, I'll just say, hey, just listen to it. Uh, and, and see and hear how many Christians have been killed and martyred for their faith. For proclaiming things uh, counter-cultural. You look at John the Baptist. It was great when he was just saying, hey, repent, all of those things. But when he, when he addressed King Herod's life, what happened? Oh, he's got to be arrested, right? Again, when you begin to confront the world's teaching and lifestyle, there's going to be hostility. And then when we point to Jesus as the Son of God, there's also going to be hostility. And, and it's been said that actually the, the 20th century, and now probably even the 21st century, are, are the, the worst centuries of persecution in the church. Ever think about that? See, right now, they, there are more Christians in China right now than there are in the United States. But what's happening right now in China? More and more churches are, being, are closing their doors. Pastors are being arrested and, and taken away. Uh, you, you see this just across uh, the Middle East and East Asia. Uh, persecution is growing more and more. But we, here in 21st century America, we don't necessarily feel that. But again, we are in the minority probably remember those videos several years ago when, when ISIS captured Christians, what, what did they do? They, they publicly beheaded them and broadcast it. Again, these are the things, this is our world right now and, and we are one tiny little place on the map but we are in the minority. Christians around the world are being persecuted and their lives are in danger. Over and over again. They live in cultures without the freedoms that we have, without the protections. And at the core of of the persecution of Christians is the central belief that we see here, that Jesus is the Son of God. That's one of the non-negotiables. You can't be a Christian and not understand that Jesus is the Son of God. 
there's a, a requirement of our faith, without which our faith changes. But then, that's worthy of an additional question. Why is it? Why is it that that's such a big deal? Why is it that as soon as I say that Jesus is God, why does it cause such an uproar? Well, logically speaking, if Jesus is God, what does that mean about everything that he taught and did? That it's true, right? So, so as soon as you say Jesus is God, what becomes the authority? God's word. So as soon as you make that commitment, your, your whole authority structure changes. That's where there's resistance to it. Additionally, you can think of politically speaking. Okay? If Jesus is God, he calls his followers, he calls Christians to have an allegiance that is higher than just to our earthly citizenship, doesn't he? He calls us first and foremost to be his servants. Uh, and, and to follow him. Our greatest allegiance, if we are Christians, is not to our earthly nation, but to our heavenly king. One historian wrote uh, this about the early days of the church in the Roman Empire. He says, The church's exclusive, intolerant, missionary attitude to other religions marked Christians out and made them very unpopular. To their pagan neighbors, this evangelistic devotion to Christ as the only Savior seemed highly arrogant and dangerously antisocial. Like, man, not much has changed, huh? Exact same statement could be said about 21st century world. And think about it this way also. When I say that politically speaking, there's hostility that comes from saying that Jesus is God. Why is it that the communist state uh, in China is so hostile towards churches. Because in a communist state, who is God? The state, the government. They run and rule everything. Your allegiance must be to the state. They rule with fear. But Christians, again, we have a higher allegiance. So, in essence, to be in a communist country and preaching the gospel, you are being subversive. You are being rebellious. You're saying, hey, there's another king that we need to follow. Right? And again, that was one of the charges that was brought up against Paul. He, he preaches a different king besides Caesar. To say, follow after him. Politically speaking, if you say Jesus is the Son of God, it's going to create waves. It demands a higher allegiance. Why it's going to cause hostility. But then also, thirdly, you can, theologically speaking, the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God implies that he is also going to be our judge. Right? We saw that if you, if you just turn a couple pages back in the Gospel of John, back to John chapter 3. You're all familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But the thoughts continue. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. For whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When we were teaching through this passage, remember, talked about that the light of Christ will reveal us either to be cockroaches. What do cockroaches do when the lights come on? <laughs> they run away. Right? We're either cockroaches or we're moths. We either flee from the light or we are drawn to the light. And again, if that's where that hostility comes from. When the light goes on, when we proclaim Jesus as the Son of God, that's going to re- bring revelation. It's going to bring light to situations and it's going to reveal sin and it's going to bring condemnation. It points to Jesus as the judge, the Son of God. Philippians 2.9 speaks of that ultimate time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That idea that Jesus is the Son of God. If we claim that, there's going to be hostility. You ever think about the fact that if, if you just say that Jesus is a good moral teacher, that never rocks any boats, right? That there's no hostility that comes from that. And there's many people that are like, yeah, Jesus is a good moral teacher. Like, and if he's just that, then I can, I can pick and choose what I want to take from that moral teacher, right? Like, well, I like this. I don't like that. I'll leave that there. Uh, and just that aspect of when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, that's significant. That demands our allegiance. Moral teachers don't demand complete allegiance. But the Son of God does. That's what brings hostility. That's what brings the world to say, man, this is, a, this is a foolish message, the message of the gospel. That we, humanity, are all sinners. That we've all rebelled against God. We've all rejected Christ in and of our flesh. We've rejected the holy God who has created us, who has given us life and breath and everything, and we've decided to go our own way. That's the heart of our culture today, and that's always been the heart of man, to be autonomous, to be our own God, our own ruler. We want to go our own way, but we can't earn our way to God. We've sinned against him, and the the judgment is an eternal penalty for our sin. But Christ came and paid that penalty, living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death on the cross, and now calling each and every one of us to place our complete trust, not in ourselves, not that he can get us 75% of the way there, but we rest completely and wholeheartedly in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the message of the gospel. But in proclaiming that gospel, we're calling Jesus Lord. We're calling him the Son of God. We're saying what, everything that the world is teaching that's contrary to that is going to be false. And that's going to bring hostility. That's going to bring persecution. And so we have to count the cost. In Luke 14, Jesus speaks about the cost of following him. And he, he uses this illustration. Luke, Luke chapter 14 Verse 25, this is now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, 
he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man begin, began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate? whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And when we see here what, what, we, what we are called to in Luke 14, it's really put on display in John chapter 5. We have to count the cost. Am I serious about following Jesus when this is what's going to come of it? Am I serious about following Jesus if hostility and persecution are promised? Do I still really want to, to be his disciple? Do I love him and care for him that much? That's really what we see here in John 5. That if we are following Jesus, here's what we can expect. Exactly what we have seen this morning. And again, the, the persecution itself will reveal what's in our hearts. It's amazing. Right after Jesus speaks with the disciples, as we read in John 15, he says, hey, the world's going to come after you and persecute you. They're like, man, we will follow you to the end. We, we won't deny you. We won't fall away. And then he gets arrested. And what do they do? Scatter. Again, we, we can prepare ourselves to a certain extent, but that, that persecution, those trials, that hostility is really going to reveal what's going on in our hearts. That we must count the cost beforehand. Expecting hostility when we confront the world's teaching and when we claim that Jesus is God. Then, if we're talking about expecting hostility... This is a, a good question. You're like, Thomas, don't leave us hanging. Don't just say, hey, there's hostility coming. Good luck with that. Uh, no, if, if hostility is coming, how do we prepare ourselves to stand firm? What must we do? I would offer just some simple thoughts. Is Number one, trust in the sovereignty, wisdom, and love of God. Okay, persecution is going to come. Hostility is going to come. And it's all going to be according to the sovereign, infinitely wise and loving plan of God. That God is going to use that hostility to reveal our hearts, to sanctify us. To help us be less and less in love with this world and more and more in love with Him. Secondly, I would say that we must trust that Jesus has overcome the world. You know, at the end of that, that portion at the Last Supper, John sixteen thirty three. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. All of this doom and gloom of, yes, we're going to have hostility and face difficult days ahead. But what, what should give us hope and, and help us to take heart? Jesus has overcome the world. And think about what he says. Jesus says, in me you will have peace. 
even in the middle of this hostility, peace and trusting in Christ is still possible. We must trust that Jesus has overcome the world and that he is to be our hope. Third, we should fear God instead of fearing men. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, again speaking about the cost of discipleship. Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And again, if you think back to, to Daniel and his friends, let's talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why is it that they were not terrified to go into the fiery furnace? Because they understood that the worst thing Nebuchadnezzar could do to them was what? Take their life. That was, the, that was all that he could do. Right? That's not so bad. And they understood that who will preserve their life? God. There's something beyond this earthly life that says, hey, all you can do is take that from me, but that just ushers me into the presence of God even faster. But we need to grow in our fear of God, our love and our reverence for Him rather than fearing men. Fourth, that we must seek first the kingdom of God. Matthew six thirty three, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And Jesus says that in the context of being anxious and growing fretful and fearful about how we will provide for ourselves, right? And what's a, what's a common concern for all of us here? Paying the bills, uh, having a roof over our heads, being able to put food on the table. Jesus says in the middle of those concerns, what, what must we seek first? His kingdom, his righteousness, not what, what hoops do I have to do? What's all of the things that I have to do to maintain my job? That's not to be our primary concern. What's our primary concern? How do I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Let's develop that. Fifth, we must pray instead of losing heart. Luke 18.1 says, this is the introduction to uh, a parable. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Like, okay, that's helpful to know what the point of that parable is. Uh, but don't lose the, the emphasis. When we are in the middle of hostility, persecution, trials, and tribulation, what are we called to do? To turn to the Lord in prayer. Okay? First uh, Thessalonians 5.17, pray without... Yeah, it's a great memory verse. If you're like, say memory verse, pray without ceasing. Got it. Uh, but developing that mindset of turning to the Lord in prayer constantly... Uh, and then would also say this, that we should see Jesus as our Sabbath rest. Okay, all this talk about the Sabbath in John 5, uh, and Jesus is emphasizing, hey, uh, I can work because the Father works. But, but seeing and understanding that Jesus is our Sabbath rest now, and we have a Sabbath rest to look forward to in the future. That's what the author of Hebrews talks about in, in Hebrews chapter 4. That, that we have a rest to look forward to. And if our rest is in the future, what does that mean about our lives now? This is a place of work. It's not a place of rest. It's not our place of comfort. That is all waiting for us in the future. Again, later on in John, Jesus tells his disciples, what is he ahead of us preparing? Yeah, a house, rooms, mansions for us in heaven. And that's what we look forward to. And again, when we look forward to that, and that grows ever larger in our hearts and minds, the things of this world will go strangely dim. 
in the light of his glory and grace. And that's what we need to begin to see and think about. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And then, lastly, remember all that Jesus has done for you. Consider your life. Consider all that Jesus has done. First and foremost, in saving you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remember what Jesus has done for you in your salvation, and then recall what Jesus has done for you ever since then. Realizing how he has cared for you, and guarded you, and provided for you, every day since you became a part of God's family. In the second century, there was a a church leader who was martyred by the name of Polycarp. And the eyewitness testimony of his martyrdom is one of the the most famous in church history. And he was uh, taken in by the the hands of the Romans and standing before the Roman governor. And and the Roman governor said, renounce Christ. I love what Polycarp said. He says, for 86 years I have been his servant. He has never done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Polycarp was then tied to a wooden stake and put to death. And of his love for Christ, his appreciation for all that Jesus has done for him, not just in saving him, which would be enough to lead us to die for Christ. But he says, all of 86 years, Christ has been faithful to me. How can I betray my Savior and my King? And again, when the work of Christ and all that he has done for us, when that is big in our lives, then the hostility of the world is is nothing. It's minimal. And so when we see that our world is on this trajectory of of growing more and more hostile towards us, we have to say, okay, then I need to be heading towards Jesus more and more. And he needs to be bigger each and every day of my life. And now the key is, how do we go do that? Again, we've we've gathered together this morning, right? Hopefully to be encouraged, to to see God's word, to hear it proclaimed. But now we're going to go scatter. Right, you're you're going to go to your to your homes, your communities, and how do you maintain your love for Christ there? All the things that we, we we have been encouraging you to do: hey, be in the Word, be in prayer. But I also just want to say, gather back together in our growth groups in the middle of the week. Gather together in fellowship because also that's where you'll be able to come together and say, man, this is what's going on at my job. This, this is my, my, my boss who's persecuting me right now, but will you join me in praying for his salvation? That the Lord would change and transform his heart and that I would be able to share the gospel with him. That's what we want to be able to do as we, we, we gather and scatter. and Come back together later on this week to pray for one another, encourage one another, to study God's word, to apply it to our lives, that Jesus Christ may grow ever larger each and every day. Amen.